finally tell us why he's writing this book. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at today. Paul sometimes, uh, I think he had a hard time getting focused sometimes too. But uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 16. And it goes like this. <coughs> Pardon me. He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Let's have a word of prayer before we get looking at this. Lord, we do thank you for all the blessings you give to us. You've brought us all safely through the storm. You've brought us all in here to lift up your name. You've made this creation beautiful, as we've already observed, with the, the beautiful snow. I do enjoy it. You are a gracious God. We were already uh, talking, Jane and I, about how what seems like a, a close call, and you, it's your grace that saves us through these accidents that could ha so easily happen. We thank you for being such a gracious God to us. Guide us through your word. Show us what you'd have for us here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I say, today Paul's finally coming around to giving Timothy the reason why he's writing this letter. He's trying to give Timothy what to expect regarding behavior in the church. We've already seen this is what good behavior in worship services looks like. We were looking at that, chapter 1, chapter 2. Uh, we've already, uh, chapter 3, we've been looking at this is what good leadership in the church looks like. He's halfway through the letter before he explains that this, this is why I'm writing to you, Timothy. Which is hard for me to understand why it took him so long to come around the barn here. Uh, but in any case, the reason for the letter, he says, is that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So that's why 1 Timothy is here. That's why we're looking at it here. And that's why we had detailed instructions for men and women in the church in chapter 2 qualifications for bishops and deacons in chapter 3, and why we get detailed instructions that we're going to look at in chapters 5 and 6. This is also why Paul was so explicit in his warnings about false teachers in chapter 1. This is what church shouldn't look like, chapter 1. And we're going to uh, return to that topic uh, next time when we get to chapter 4. We're going to see the same thing. This is what bad behavior looks like in the church. See, the key thought to remember as we go through this section today is that true doctrine is naturally going to lead to right living. If our doctrine is solid and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else, then we can't help but have the proper behavior in church. So let's read verse 14 again. It says, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. 
So Paul here says he intends to come and visit Timothy in Ephesus. But he's writing these things so that Timothy has them in case Paul can't make it right away. This is so important, Paul says, that I don't want it to wait for an in-person visit. I may not be able to make it. Remember, Paul was shipwrecked. Seems like every time he got on a boat, he got shipwrecked. Uh, if I were him, I'd take the long way and walk around. But uh, in any case, travel was, I mean, I, I traveled home from Maine on Friday in the snowstorm, and some spots it was all right, some spots it wasn't. Travel even today is sketchy. Paul knows travel is sketchy. Paul says, I'm writing you this letter just in case I can't make it to Ephesus. By the way, he never did. Uh, <clears throat> and Paul knew that what he was writing was so important. If it was so important to Paul that he took the time to write this down in case I can't make it to see, I intend to see you, Timothy, but I'm writing this to you anyway, then you and I ought to pay pretty close attention to it as well, hadn't we? If it was that important to Paul. You see... Too often we skip through this book thinking, well, we're not looking for new church leadership right now, so we don't really need to read 1 Timothy, do we? Now, as we already observed, Paul says that he intends to make a very, uh, very near future visit to Ephesus. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, if you want to go look at Acts chapter 20, verses 25 down to the end of the chapter, you can do that this afternoon, but I'm not going to right now you can see that the Ephesian church was very discouraged when they realized that they might never see Paul's face again. Paul's writing from prison, a prison that he probably didn't get out of. Uh, here, Paul says he intends to stop in. But until then, here are some critically important things for you to keep in mind, Timothy, as you instruct this young church of Ephesus. <clears throat> Now, let's step out of our lesson for a second here and just think about things for a minute. If Paul hadn't been prevented from coming to Ephesus, we wouldn't have this book. You and I would not have the book of First and Second Timothy if Paul hadn't been thwarted. You think Paul was, I wonder why God, why God aren't you allowing me to go to Ephesus? I make these plans, I got, it, I got my tickets, uh... Why can't I get to Ephesus? Paul was thwarted in his efforts to go to Ephesus so that you and I would sit here in Surrey, New Hampshire and read First and Second Timothy. Do you know that's why some things happen in your life? You're sitting there wondering why something happens in your life? I heard a preacher tell me one time, I, I spend a lot of time driving. I listen to a radio an awful lot. When you listen to a radio a lot, it's inevitable you will hear that. This is a test. Don't you wish that when something happened in your life, you got that warning? This is a test. That's why this is happening in your life. This is a test. This is only a test. When this test is over, this, is, this completes the test. Now you can go continue in your life. Don't you wish that happened in your life sometimes? That would help. Sometimes things happen in your life, and they are a test. Sometimes things happen for you to learn from. Sometimes things happen, and they've got nothing to do with you at all. It's about somebody else. And that's what happened to Paul, don't you see? 
Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, God thwarted him. It wasn't for Paul to learn anything. It wasn't for Paul's benefit. It was for your and my benefit. So the least we could do is pay attention to it, right? That was all off topic. Let's get back to uh, 1 Timothy again. Let's look at verse 15. Paul says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So this is the meat of today's passage, by the way. This is the meat of what we're going to look at. This is Paul's reason for writing. Notice right off the bat what Paul calls the church. This is how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God. The house of God. Greek word is oikos. That's a very common phrase for Paul when he's talking about the church. He quite often refers to the house of God, the oikos of God, which is kind of a familial setting. It's the household. Uh, It's the people who are in the house more than it is the house structure itself. Oikos. He sees us as God's family. We're God's family. We're each members. Now if that is the illustration that Paul uses then, let's consider the church as a family for a minute. Let's think about the church as a family. In a family, there's varying degrees of authority, aren't there? And there's varying degrees of responsibility, isn't there? The children have certain responsibilities. The parents have certain responsibilities. Who must work and struggle for a living, feed the wife and children, say his daily prayers. Who must serve as master of the house and have the final word at home. The papa! I'm not going to sing the rest of it to you. But everybody in the family has a distinctly different role, don't they? And distinctly different tasks. That doesn't mean that anybody is more important than anybody else, does it? Because if you listen to the rest of the song, the mama has her job, the the son has his job, the, the daughters have their jobs. Everybody's got a different job. No one's more important. They all have different roles. We ought to celebrate that diversity, shouldn't we? Instead of blurring the lines like society is trying to do today. But I'm going off topic again. Let's celebrate the different roles that we have. We each, you have different roles, I have a different role. You have different responsibilities in this house. I have different responsibilities in this house. We're all equal, but we've got different roles, don't we? Let's celebrate that. Let's not be jealous of why does he have this, why does she have that. We've all got different tasks to do in this household of God. And then Paul explains himself a little bit further, in case you didn't pick up on what he's talking about. This is the church of the living God, he says. This is how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, as you already know, because you've been in Sunday school for so long, you know that the Greek word for church here is ekklesia, which literally means assembly. When you read, you can read it in Homer, you can read it in any time people are gathered together, it's an ekklesia, it's just a gathering. 
The church is an assembly through which God chooses to manifest His presence to the world. That's what this assembly, this, that's what sets this ecclesia apart from all the other ecclesias all around. God, this is the gathering God chooses to display His presence in. That's pretty sobering. Now, the term living God, that's kind of old-timey type language. Old Testament, old-timey language, isn't it? Uh, I think of passages like, let's look back to Numbers 14. Some of these classic passages where we see the living God displayed. This is what he looks like. Numbers 14, verse 28. He's talking, uh, this is God speaking. I'm going to back up to verse 26. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, and he says, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me, and say unto them, As truly as I live. God's describing himself as, I am the living God. There's a lot of other gods in this world, but I'm the one that lives. As surely as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. And then he makes a promise that all of you people who didn't want to follow my word and go into the promised land, you're going to die in the wilderness. Just as sure as I live, God says. Let's go over to Joshua chapter 3. Now Joshua was one of the ones that uh, was just being spoken to there. And here's where the promise got fulfilled. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 10. Uh, I'm going to back up to verse 9. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither, and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth before you into the Jordan. The living God. And this church, right here, Bethel in Surrey, New Hampshire, is the ecclesia where the living God chooses to display himself to Cheshire County. This is where the living God dwells visibly. Remember in Joshua, that passage we just read in Joshua. And look, there's his Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is going to go before you. That's what you and I are carrying when we carry the gospel. That visible Ark of the Covenant to this world around us. God doesn't go around as a pillar of fire and cloud anymore. So He chooses to reveal Himself through you and me. That's a sobering thought. I don't know. I've said that twice now. That is a very sobering thought to me. But Paul doesn't stop there. He describes the church 
this body, this household of God. You and I are in the family of God. We are the ecclesia God chooses to display himself through. And beyond that, we're the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? You and I, both individually and together, are the anchor for the only truth in this whole world. There is no other truth in this world but this truth right here. There's a whole world of untruth. I can get you untruth all day long. You and I are the pillar and ground to the only truth in the whole world. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we saw back in chapter 2 and verse 4. We want to flip back to that. Still in the same book. Let's uh, actually get the whole thought back to uh, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. If they're all going to come into the knowledge of the truth, and we are the pillar and the ground of that truth, we've got to get that truth out there. Now, by the way, when it says pillar and ground, it's, that's architectural language that it's using here. That's architectural language. The word that's translated ground in the King James could actually be better translated as buttress. Uh, that's really what it literally means, a buttress or a foundation. So when you're talking a pillar, or you're talking a buttress or a foundation, you're talking about something that holds something up, right? The idea here is that the church holds up the truth of the gospel before the rest of the world, just like those Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. They're holding it up so everybody around can see it. That's what we ought to be doing with that gospel. Hold it right up on your shoulder. Carry it out into a whole world of untruth. You see that? That's the truth of God Almighty, the living God, the God of all the earth right there. That's what you and I are trusted to carry. Again, have you ever thought of our body of believers? Have you ever thought of Bethel Bible Church in Surrey as that? Because that's what we are. That's the only real defense against false teaching, too, by the way. Holding up the truth of God's Word is the only defense against false teaching. Now, that, isn't that quite a picture of a church? That's quite a picture of a church. That's a kind of a threefold picture Paul's given. We're a family. We're the family of God. We are the ecclesia that the living God displays Himself to everybody around, and we carry the truth forward in a world of lies and hypocrisy. No other group of people on earth has ever been entrusted with this revealed truth like you and I have. Even parachurch organizations, which I do some good in the world and I work with several of them, uh, 
I work with Word of Life. I work with Global Media Outreach. These are good, good ministries, but they're not a church. They don't have the privilege that you and I have as the church of God carrying this gospel forward. That ought to make us take this meeting here on Sunday morning in Surrey, New Hampshire a little more seriously, shouldn't it? Let's move to verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Here, verse 16, Paul's given us a look at what exactly that great gospel message is that we, can, we as the church are privileged to lift up on our shoulders and carry out into this world. He calls it the mystery of godliness. And we'll see from what follows that Paul sees the mystery of godliness as the entirety of God's revealed plan of salvation. All of it, start to finish, from Jesus born in the manger to lift it up into heaven. And he writes us this beautiful little poem to describe that gospel message. God the Son was revealed in the flesh, which led to his crucifixion, he, but he was justified by the Spirit, who raised him back to life. And after that, he was displayed in victory before all the heavenly angels. That's quite a message, isn't it? That's the gospel. Plain and simple. And now it's yours and my turn to preach it to the Gentiles. That's a thrown in there in that poem as well. We get to preach it to the Gentiles. And that preaching has a powerful effect. It's believed on in all the world. And then we return to the image of Christ, who's been received up into glory. It seems to me, at first reading, that that bit should have followed the victorious display after the resurrection, don't you think? Spirit raised him up, showed him into victory before the angels, and then uh, uh, received him up into glory. But I think Paul might have put it here on purpose to point us toward the glorious return of Christ that we're going to see. Are you looking forward to the return of Christ? Boy, I sure am. More and more every day, it seems. We're still looking forward to it. Paul was looking forward to it 2,000 years ago. And I'm still looking forward to it now. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that we have the privilege of sharing, isn't it? Have you shared that gospel? It's a beautiful picture. We just admitted that it's a beautiful picture. Have you shared that picture with anybody recently? See, Paul gives us this clear picture of the truth of the glorious gospel just before we take a turn in the next chapter and we're going to see some of the demonic lies and the false teachings that are trying to creep into the church. This is what the truth looks like, Paul says. And next time we're going to get together and we're going to talk about, and this is what the demonic lies that are trying to creep in look like. There's no comparison, is there? There's a glorious gospel here 
that we should be carrying forward. And then there's this insidious untruth. This picture in verse 16 is probably the most beautiful verse in the whole book of 1 Timothy, at least in my opinion. Think of one other thing with me, though. Paul, we're going to step outside of first, our 1 first Timothy class for just a second again. Paul here is explaining the greatness of Christ, right? That's what he's doing when he writes this little poem. He's explaining how great Christ is and how great his gospel is. Who is he explaining it to? Timothy, and through Timothy to the Ephesian church, right? This is the church of Ephesus. These are the same people who in Acts chapter 19, verse 34, were saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You thought Diana was great. Let me show you somebody who's truly great and his gospel, which is magnificently great. You see that right there? That's what Paul's talking about. They thought Diana was great. This is what's truly great. Christ is truly great. And his gospel is magnificent. I don't think that fact would have been lost on Timothy. I don't think it would have been lost on any of the Ephesians listening to it. See, Paul's trying to show them a picture of someone who is truly great. So, I'm pretty much done teaching right now. Uh, I'm out of stuff to go on this. But if if anybody would like just a little bit more church history trivia, I can give you another three or four minutes of that. All right. A little bit of church history. This little poem that Paul wrote in verse 16 is regarded by many people to be one of the earliest hymns of the church. This is one of the earliest hymns of the church. There's a lot of evidence that the early church sang this as a six-line hymn in their worship services. There's a lot of evidences because it's written down in formal writings of church services in 1st and 2nd century uh, around Turkey, Ephesus area. We have evidence of that. And this was a good practice uh, to remind people of the basic truths of the gospel, right? How often do you sit sit down about... What are, what are the details of the gospel? Well, Paul lays it right out here in a, in a hymn. And remember also that most of these people were slaves and couldn't read. And even if they could read, like Timothy could read, there weren't a lot of books anyway. It's not like each, each of us has a copy of the Bible right here in our hands. Every single one of us does. They didn't have that. Their church may have had portions of the Bible, probably not all of it, and probably only one or two people that could read it. There weren't a lot of books, because books in those days were handwritten. There was no printing presses. Remember another thing, a printing press is a relatively new invention in the grand scheme of the church. They've only been around for about 500 years. That's why the church had to use so many doxologies and so many confessions for thousands of years. About 1,500 years of church history, people were taught by repeating doxologies and repeating confessions, and they're a great, easy-to-remember tool to learn the truths of the church, especially among people who can't read or don't have books. But whatever the case may be, a lot of that was speculation, church history and speculation that I just gave you just now, But whatever the case may be on that, 
That is the gospel in a nutshell. And it's our privilege to carry that forward to a dying world. Cheshire County's dying around us. I hope you realize that. And we can carry this saving gospel to them. And we ought to take that task seriously, hadn't we? Wherever and whenever we can. Will you help me do that? Let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for entrusting me with the privilege of being able to carry this great mystery of godliness to a lost and dying world. You've entrusted me with the only truth in the world. And you've given me this family to help me lift it up. Help us to bring that gospel to this world around us in a worthy manner. Again, I say, help us to make your name great to this world. And in that name I pray, amen.